Thank you for tuning in to The Great Work Podcast. My name is Amanda, your host. Before we get into the episode, be sure to comment, rate, subscribe, leave me five stars if you think I deserve it, and share this, share this with a friend if you think that they would enjoy it. Today, I have two really phenomenal guests for you guys. I have Renzi, who you all know from TikTok. Renzi is a Syrian Jew. We talk a lot about her family's experience in Syria before they immigrated to America. We talked about what Israel is now, how it's like a beautiful mix of Ashkenazi Jews and Sephardi Jews and Mizrahi Jews. And we talk about the plight of Mizrahi Jews throughout the Arab world before the founding of the state of Israel. I think you guys are really, really, really going to enjoy that conversation. After Renzi, we have Maz, who you guys may have met on my lives before. Maz is a Jordanian Muslim, and he considers himself pro-Palestine, but pro like the Palestinian civilians. He hates Hamas. And he talks a lot about um, the Arab culture and says things that in the West we're not really allowed to say. Um, he actually couldn't have his camera or his or on or have his real identity shown because he is so worried about a law in Jordan that if you are critical of the government or the Arab culture at all, you can be thrown in jail. And so he, you know, he doesn't want this to get back to him, but he has, I'm so grateful he came on the podcast and shared all of this. He's so well-educated. He reads so much. He's studied in the West. He's studied in Jordan. He loves Jordan. He loves, you know, his culture, but he sees these problems with it that, again, we're not allowed to say it out loud in the West, but he kind of explains what he sees as problems with Jordan. And then he talks about what he thinks the West's solution should be. So be sure to be um, listen to Renzi's episode or interview because it's incredible. And be sure to stick around for Maz's interview because it's awesome. And so this is going to be a long episode, so I apologize in advance. So, you know, I won't hold up any more of your time. Let's get into it. So I'm excited to have Renzi on because when I started on TikTok, I would go live because people say to go live and people would always get on my TikTok and they'd be like on my live and be like, get off of this live and like get off of your own and go talk to Renzi, go talk to Joelle. I'm like, I don't know them. Like they don't want to talk to me, you know, Um so I'm glad I met you guys and I got the courage to like go on those lives and meet all of you guys because you guys are all so cool. Um, how did you get started on TikTok? Um, so like many others, I started a while ago um, and it was really just me scrolling through TikTok and bumping into a debate, a live debate about Israel. It was around the time of the whole Kanye West situation. Oh. Semitism in America. Um, I think I started off with that. Um, it sort of grew into a huge interest for me. And from there, I pretty much it was I was living and breathing it every day, <laughs> reading books, um, so researching stuff, talking to different people about things, listening to different podcasts, um, talking to my family about uh, their situations, because it seems like so many of my family has pretty much buried everything that they've been through. Um, and I, we don't really speak about it anymore. And I've just brought up a lot of history and everything's, you know, now I'm learning so much more about my family and how involved they were in the um, independence of Israel. So 
it's really it really made me even more fall in love with all of it even more and that's I, I had to get it out there so totally well i think that's a good place to start is do you want to explain a little bit about your background and um your family's history with israel so our story is a little different not many people meet us because we were a very tiny group left in syria till the 90s it was only 4,000 people um my parents are from Damascus, from the Jewish village. Um, they, after 1948, I'll speak on more of my parents since they both grew up there and my grandparents. Um, after 1948, it was pretty much open air prison. I know you hear that a lot, <laughs> days, but it's it was so much scrutiny, so much um, basically just a lot of watching like the, the Syrian government was very on top of the Jewish community to make sure that they wouldn't go to Israel but it was a very big thing for them that they don't go to Israel um, many people did escape successfully and many people didn't um, if you were caught trying to leave it was immediate jail time or death on the spot so yeah it was there's many different stories for many different families. Um, my family specifically in 1950, my grandmother, or maybe we have to go back so you'll understand it better. Um, during the Ottoman Empire, my grandma's family, from my dad's side, her cousins were able to migrate. You know, it was open back then. During the Ottoman Empire, everybody was, they were able to go to Jerusalem. They were able to go do work during the Ottoman Empire, they traveled to Egypt, they traveled to, you know, different parts. Um, my grandma's cousins, they started a kibbutz oh. near Jerusalem called Afikim. And it's still there, by the way. My family's still there. They're, you know, they're, this is like three generations ago. It was about 1901 that they started this kibbutz. Um, and what they did there was basically whoever you know, wanted to leave Syria and come live there, it was open, like, for them to live there. They, And if you know what a kibbutz is, they had these little communities where they, they worked for their own food, they helped each other, they taught the children, they pretty much just a little village of people. Um, And from there, my great, my grandma's grandmother, um, in 1950, after the independence of Israel, who wanted to go, you know, be with the rest of her family. Her and four of her grandchildren were killed in Beirut on in route. Yeah. So four little kids. It was I just found this out. Oh, oh yeah. So the, there's so many buried stories about us, I think, because, you know, that's just how Jews are. We go through stuff, we move on, we live a new life, and then uh, so on and so forth. I think throughout history that's proved that. Um, like yeah, that's um uh, pretty. But my fam, my grandma's side of that family, they did a lot of really amazing things that pretty much uh, makes up for whatever else. But they, her father, my grandma's father, he used to help younger people, like in the ages of. 15 to 25 and he would bring them to Israel 
Um, and they were orphans, so they would stay in Israel, stay in the kibbutzim, and as many people as he was able to get, he would bring them over, you know, secretly, many successful operations, bringing them out of Syria. Um, a lot of other people weren't lucky and ended up staying. And throughout the years, there were peaceful times. My parents aren't, you know, they don't hate Syria. You know, it was a little more modern than other Arab countries. It was more of a city life. They didn't have to cover their hair or, you know, it wasn't that type of place. But they were always under surveillance 24 hours a day. Um, if you were in contact with people in Israel or um, even spoke about Israel, it was not okay at all. So they were very, you know, had to be very careful. Um, and I think people also need to understand is that when we go by these people, we'll call them national, nationalistic names like Syrian Jew, we don't feel a tie to Syria, but we, we're more so tied to our community. You get what I mean? We're yeah. a very insular community here in America. And I don't think it's a nationalistic thing that we call ourselves Syrian Jews. I think it's more of our culture and how we've been for so long. Um, but, I mean, if you would ask us if we would go back, it's definitely no. Yeah, <laughs> that's understandable. I think that's really... Um... I've been thinking about this a lot. I think that's really indicative of the Ottoman Empire and how the Ottoman Empire worked because they were not cool with nationalistic ideals at all and they would squash that throughout the Ottoman Empire. So under the Ottomans, people were really insular within their communities. And it makes sense that your family feels that way. It's just evidence of a kingdom right. that I've kind of separately came to as an outsider. But what I think is even more interesting, or I don't know how you feel about this, but so... The Ottomans ruled for, for, I mean, what was it, the late 600s to the early 1900s, right? Mm -hmm. But that's a long time. And when you think about that long of a time being, you couldn't really have the nationalistic identity. It was just insular into your community. And there was the system of like the demi system. So Arabs were above. I understand now it, when you have that understanding of the insular community, plus the demi system when the ottoman empire fell and the british put it under a mandate and said well we're going to do two uh like you guys can all just live together as one i understand why after hundreds of years of being greater than the arabs did not want to share a state with equal power to the jews exactly like and it and it i mean if you related to slavery in the united states how long was slavery around a hundred years 150 years something like that and then it ended in the civil war but we didn't just wake up one day and um blacks and whites were completely equal right after the civil war it took a long time to get to where we are and maybe people would say that we're still not completely equal but it, it it's taken a long time to get to where we are and it was only right. for 150 years the ottoman empire hundreds of years it's been 75 years since this equal statehood. I wonder if that attitude has plays a part in why the Arabs cannot accept a Jewish state. I don't know if you have thoughts on that. I think that's pretty much the the core reason why they can't accept a, a Jewish state. How can you take a people that have been the almost third class citizens of society for hundreds of years, maybe thousands, who knows what it was before the Ottomans during the Mamluks, you know, how can you take a you know a group of people like this and they all of a sudden become 
independent and flourishing and become the startup nation of the world, right? I don't think people understand the Middle Eastern mentality here in the West. I don't think they understand the tribal and insular part of them. Um, and that's why I always say it's so important for Mizrahi Sephardic Jews who who were a part of this society who I think it's so it's so they don't understand how we've lived with them for thousands of years. We've lived the same exact way. You know, we obviously with less rights, but it's like we lived in these insular communities. We stayed to ourselves. We married into each other and they were the same way. It wasn't, you know, we weren't assimilating. Pretty much the only thing I think that they did together was probably business. You know, in the Middle East, the Jews were very good with trade, with textile, with um, with export, import, whatever it was. And that was pretty much the only relationship I think they had um, with the Arabs and even the Christians and uh, anybody outside of the community. So for them to see these people that, you know, they've been able to watch and control for so long become above, I'm not saying above, like as if oppressor and yeah. Jews, are, no, like they've come to an equal status almost. So it's like, how did this happen? First you had them coming from Europe after they've been almost wiped out the face of the earth. And then you have the Jews were already here that we were able to control all of a sudden coming together. So it's like, they look at it, they look at us, right? And they see the Mizrahi and Sephardic Jews as traitors to them. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. I mean, if I don't know if you've ever heard me speaking to them, and I'll tell them I'm Syrian, and they'll be like, that's impossible. How? How can you be Syrian and stand with Israel? And I don't think they understand that I'm a Jew, and I've always been Jewish, and, I, and I've never been accepted. My parents have never been accepted as an equal person in Syria. We're not Arabs. You know, and it's it's very hard for people to take that out. They they don't understand the understand the concept of what it was for Jewish people in the Arab world, and it it's it's pretty like you, do people really think that us as Mizrahi and Sephardic Jews would go against another whole group of Jewish people? It's just, and I think people also don't know because because the Zionist movement was always predominantly presented in the Western world by the Ashkenazi Jews, they don't know that the Mizrahi and Sephardic Jews were a big part of the Zionist movement. And these, you know, these things were also happening early on in the 1900s in the Arab world. Like there would be Jews who would pass on intel to the other Jews who were already in Israel. And people don't understand how, how can the Jews win a war in 1948? You know, who was getting all this intel? Who was getting this um, intel from the Arab leaders and, and the Arab side? It was the Mizrahi and Arabic Jews who spoke Arabic. Um, and it's like, I think we need to bring that out there more. And I think it needs to be more, um, more, they say, like, it needs to be, people need to be aware that Jews don't only come in, you know, we're, we're not all from, most of Israel is from that part of the world. Right percent of us are from the Arab world and that's just what it is. I, I don't 
I don't know when it would be like if I would when I talk to Palestinians in Arabic, you know, sometimes we do have a good conversation. You know, I have so much in common with them. And it's like we can exist together. We can coexist because we have so much in common. But they don't give that a chance. They want to understand that we are pretty much almost very similar. Right. Right. Well, I think that's a big this reminds me of a video that you made, which I think was really good when I think that in the West, people are so focused on skin color and they they and then focus on their own experience. So what you're saying, they view people in Israel as all white Ashkenazi Jews and some Ashkenazi Jews do appear very white and others don't, by the way, like some don't. And I think it's weird to talk about race in the first place. I mean, it just feels gross to me, but I'm I'm like super white. So, you know, that's probably why I feel that way. But like, <laughs> and I have a daughter that has blonde hair and blue eyes. You would think I am Ashkenazi. I, I look it, but we're not. And that's what people don't understand is if you go to Syria or Lebanon, most people are my skin color. Right. A lot of people are my skin color. But then it becomes you're too white. You can't be in the Middle East. And it's like, excuse me? <laughs> what are you talking about? If you look at all of the graphics that Hezbollah is putting out, like mourning the loss of their fighters, every single one of them looks like white. I'm like, those are the... the That is the Levant. Yeah. The Levant is not... Like, of course, you're going to go towards Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Iran. You're going to have a darker complexion. But once you start moving in towards Lebanon, Syria, somewhat Jordan and Palestinian territories, a lot of the Arabs, they are my skin color. Like, it's not... The majority of Syria and Lebanon is light complexion, and it's just weird to me how they separate the light-skinned Jews from the Middle Eastern culture, which is just beyond me that they even come up with this kind of rhetoric. But even in North Africa, like Moses from TikTok is half Romanian, half Libyan. Libyan, yeah. So North Africa, Libya, he doesn't appear like he has very light skin. Like, yeah. You can have light skin color and be from the middle, like, but, but people don't understand that or, and then they try and put like the American race relations on the Middle East. And it's like, well, it's not race that they had a problem with over there as much as it was different tribal identities, really. Right. Right. I don't, that's what I was saying in the beginning. The West doesn't understand the Middle Eastern mentality at all. They don't understand the society they don't understand the the way like the, the way they think is completely different. Even my own parents, right? Coming to America was a huge culture shock for my parents. They had no idea how to deal with a different society. People are equal. They all live in mixed neighborhoods. They go to school together. They it was very weird to them. It, assimilation in the Arab world within their own like Arabs assimilating with other tribes is not a thing. They stay within their tribes, they marry within their tribes and and so on and so forth. So it's like like you said, living 400 maybe more years insulated into your community, into your tribe and then you all of a sudden all these nation states, the borders start getting cut up and we become nationality. You see flags coming up, Syrian flag, Lebanese flag, like this whole nationalistic guy like idea was very hard in the Middle East for the Middle East, right? And especially now that there's a random Jewish state right there in the middle of it, all of it, it's 
it's very hard for them to grasp it, especially the manipulating of the history, right? Mm-hmm. In the Arab world, and anybody who's grew up in Syria and lives here now can tell you the history they learned over there is very different than reality. Very different. My parents were taught growing up the Holocaust was a hoax. My parents are both Jewish, that it was only about 50 to 100,000 Jews who were killed in the Holocaust versus 6 million. Yeah. Um, They were taught very negative things about Jewish people. Um, But thankfully, our community, because we were so insular, they were able to keep everybody informed as much as they can. And like, but these were, this was what it was. This was the education system. It still is in most of the Middle East where they, there's a huge, huge restoration of history in the Middle East. Complete, like they wipe off complete events that have happened or they add things that never happened. Um, the media, if you think the media lies now, if you watch the Arabic media or listen to Arabic media or read any newspapers from the 40s, 60s, 70s, every single event was propaganda and lies. Now, my father lived through the 73 war. He was 10 years old, but on the other side, on the enemy side, Syria was in war with Israel. Um, and the Syrian media would lie about everything that was happening. They were declaring victory. When everybody knows the Syrians went running back, they left the borders and went running back and they lost a lot of soldiers. They would declare things like we took down 25 Israeli planes when there were only 11 planes. It was just big lies that made no sense. So people need to understand this Whole, like even this war we hear, people think like the propaganda is uh, a new war machine that they built. This has been happening since the very beginning. Um, it's it's really crazy how they're able to just separate their entire populations against the reality of things, like and teach them this, and and now it's coming to the West. You know, people people in the West are being taught these things and being taught that Israel you know, was just a bunch of European white people who came in and wiped everybody off and took over. I mean, people are seriously, like, believing this. And it's just, we need to slowly educate people on the reality, the history. Um, Will we be successful? I don't know. They're very good at their, uh, I call it um, social media and Tabata. That's a good one. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. That's totally what it is. What was that? Sorry. I said, it's really sad that you have education systems in the United States who are, or even in Europe, who are teaching complete lies. Um, I've just never, I never thought in my lifetime I would watch this sort of thing happen to the Jewish people. And I say the Jewish people because I'm living in New York City and I'm, you know, my sisters go to college. My, you know, I have like Jews all in these big universities and they're dealing with anti-Semitism in 2024. And nobody cares. I mean, they just tell us we whine too much and shut the hell up and take it. But like, I never thought I'd see this day, to be honest. I thought we were over that, but I guess not. You bring up a lot of good points. The one about when you said like Arabs had a hard time or like the people in the Middle East had a hard time with nationalism and like these borders being put down. 
I think what people don't understand is within those borders that were put down, they didn't reject nationalism outright, really. I mean, to a degree, like pan-Arabism and stuff. But no, they want their subgroup, their tribe to rule that national, like that national state. That's what the problem is. It's not we don't want a national state. It's we want our group to rule the, na- the state now. Like right. with the Alawites in Syria, I guess, would be one example. Like they're the minority, but they run Syria and they're... They do. Yeah. Very, with a very strong hand. Right. In Jordan. They're really, really Jordanian. Like it's just them, the family, just the family. And then you have... Pretty much 80% of it is people from all over. Some of them are Syrian, some of them are Egyptian, some... It's pretty... I don't... I think after the Ottoman Empire fell, the main goal before, like, of the Arabs was to get the French and British out first and then rebuild their one, you know, yeah. caliphate or whatever it is. We had it back to what it was, just not under the Ottomans. Um, but to be honest with you, they... Now we look at it. Now they they are very nationalistic. Mm-hmm. Like we're talking about current day, they are nationalistic. Like they're so proud to be Lebanese. They're so proud to be Syria. Yet nobody knows how these countries even came to form. Nobody understands that before the forties, these countries didn't exist. They did not exist. And they're just like, what are you talking about? Syria has always been there. Well, obviously, it's always been there as a land. But it was not always an independent, like Syria has always been, like Syria is a very big part of history, right? Lebanon didn't exist before. Jordan didn't exist before. Qatar didn't exist before. Many of these countries are very new, mm-hmm. right? But you'll talk to a Lebanese person and they'll be completely ignorant about the fact. They'll think Lebanon's always been there. And it's like, there's a new level of nationalism now in today's day, like very ignorant nationalism. Yeah. Um. Like you think you're ethnically Lebanese, but no, Lebanon is a new place. It's a new, you know, it was always been, it was a part of Syria before. Most Lebanese people are originally Syrians. It's, but they don't understand that. They don't, they don't know that these borders were built and these countries are new or, or that Jordan was a part of the British mandate the same way palestine like it was all one and the french had syria plus lebanon so it was like i don't think they under they also don't a lot of people don't separate the regional aspect of palestine versus sovereign country of palestine mm-hmm. i'll tell somebody there's never been a sovereign country called palestine they'll get offended what are you getting there there's never been an independent sovereign arab state called palestine Give me one time in history that it's ever been bordered and called Palestine and there was a Palestinian people and there's never been. And the, people will say I'm being offensive or I'm erasing them or I'm not. There is a Palestinian people today as of maybe 1964. I would say 1988, <laughs> but but not it's not what it was. Yeah, it wasn't it was even I'll tell you um, someone very good, great that I knew who passed away. He was over. When he passed away, he was about 101. So he lived, or he was born during the Ottoman time. He died like four years ago. He would, no, actually, yeah, no, he didn't. He was born like during the early times of the British mandate. Um, He would tell me about 
the Arabs in the region, they would not call, there was no such word as Palestine or Palestine. The Arabs would call the region Bladisham, all of the region. There was no Lebanon or or Palestine or it was all Bladisham. That's what they call it, which meant Greater Syria. That was that was the name of the region in Arabic, Bladisham. And then everybody went by their tribal name or you know their family name. It was never a um, over the pal where the Palestinian where it was never that was never a thing until way maybe now but that was that was actually a revelation to me at the time because I was like they they always tell us that they've always been Palestinians but it's like no you haven't because you've always called yourselves like you know by your tribal name first of all we know that and then the region was always called not Palestine it was called Bladisham greater Syria and everybody was free to move um, for travel work from, you know, different parts of the Levant to other parts of the Levant and across the Middle East. But they don't understand that concept um, that in, you know, after the, the mandates fell, all most of these states formed, you know, nationalisms, nationalist, nationalistic I ideals were on the rise pretty much all over the world. Um, and I don't think, and that's a part of why I speak on the education system in the Middle East. They pretty much teach if always existed, not as Palestine, but it's always been Arab land, right? This is Arab land. We've been here since the beginning of time. All the indigenous people like Assyrians, Chaldeans, nobody talks about them, like the Coptic Egyptians, the the Maronites. The education system in the Arab world does not even bring up their history and what happened to them. That, that's the insane thing. Like these people were ethnically cleansed off you know, a lot of them still live there. They've already integrated, but they still have their culture. They still maintain their language. They still maintain their traditions, their religion. And it's like, you, they don't, a lot of people don't understand the concept that this was not Arab land before. There were people here. Jews have been here way longer than the, the Arab, um, the Arab, the Arab people got there. When, when the Arab uh, conquest happened in the 7th century, Jews had already been living there for almost a thousand years. Literally. Not, I think. Yeah. Like, maybe. Yeah. I'm giving, I'm giving them, you know. Give them a little. But it's, they've already had established communities pretty much. Syria has one of the oldest synagogues sitting there. It's almost 2,500 years old. It was actually recently destroyed in the Civil War. Um but if I say that to someone, they'd look at me like I'm crazy. What What are you talking about? Uh, you were there before us. Syria's Arab, uh, Lebanon Arab. Like we've always been there. It's always been Arab. We're the dominant people there. It's just very. It, they can't. They can't accept it. Like you know, Americans at least we can accept history. We can accept the bad things we did. We can talk about it. We can educate about it. But in the Arab world. That these things never happened. We've always been here. It's always been us. This is, you know, the Jews just randomly came from Europe. They don't even teach about how we've also been there. Like, it's it's pretty much restoration of history that is the problem today, and it's coming to the West, brainwashing our people into believing these lies. But 
that's what we're here for. Yeah, definitely. It's funny, too, when you're saying that um, the Civil War happened in America because Abraham Lincoln won president and he wasn't even on the ballot in half of the southern states, maybe more than half of the southern states. So they were saying, how can this guy become president when he is not even the like, we didn't even have the chance to elect him. He wasn't even on the ballot. So right. like it's like we don't even have a choice. It's it. I see a similarity with the Arab world and like, how can this be true? How can the Jews have their own state when they they're not even real? Like how many people say Israel's not real? It's like they're a lot more real than Palestine at this point. You know, I always say it's very. Can you imagine living in such a delusional state? For your whole life just thinking that israel's just gonna vanish <laughs> it is nuts like 10 million people are just gonna leave an independent country in 2024 is just going to vanish. like i do i can't understand how people really feel like after 75 years of this country like after all the hard work the building of this country the tears and blood and sweat put into this country all the wars all the people israel has lost and they think that we are just going to give up i'll tell you and i've heard this from a lot of people israelis and the jewish people will fight till the till the till we can't anymore for this like this has been our only time in history where we have actually felt equal to other people isn't that like we actually feel equal to like jews actually for the first time in history feel equal to other people somewhere that's every every time we've actually assimilated and we've you know think we have it good like in germany or in europe where you know people were very the jewish people were very educated they had good jobs they had good lives but in a blink of an eye they lost everything and and they couldn't even fight back and people would tell us, like, you guys are, you know, you have privilege here. You live a beautiful life. You guys are all rich. You make money. You you do this, you do that. And it's like, we're being watched 24-7, though. Every single thing the Jewish people do is overrepresented in the media. If one community in Brooklyn does something, the entire world goes crazy. Like Jeffrey Epstein a Jewish man. Why do we have to go for, is he the first person who has committed such a horrible thing or who has done such horrible thing or is a horrible person? No, there are many who have done things like this. There are many people who are guilty of things like that, but it's like, well, he's Jewish. So you are all bad, all of you. And to me, it's like, this is, this is how we have to live our entire lives for us to be able to keep Israel, like I said, it's going to have it's going to have to be till our very last breath. Like there's no way anybody can ever take it away from us. There's no way it's just not gonna happen ever. It's never gonna happen. It's it's, it's the only victory and the, it's the only thing we have that connection to. Like me, I've I've never lived there. I haven't you know, I've never but the way I feel about it, the way we all feel about it, it's like this bond between all of us, the Jewish people and our allies and and Israel. It's 
it's very real for us. And because we are overrepresented in the media, we we are always going to do what we have to do to to keep ourselves uh, as I don't even know how to say it anymore. So keep ourselves as victorious as possible. Totally. I would yeah. love to know what these people would think if we said when they say, "Oh, we can just go back to like peace or whatever." Like it was always peaceful, and that's incorrect. But like, okay. It was always peaceful when blacks and whites did not have similar rights in America. And it was peaceful when the blacks just sat in the back of the bus. So why are you trying to sit in the front of the bus now? Like that that's crazy. We would never say that now. Why are we applying that to the Middle East with the Jews? It's crazy. Because it was peaceful for them when we listened and <laughs> we complied. Why else would it like this this guy actually posted a video with his very old grandmother the other day and she said we lived great in hebron in hebron where ma- massacres have happened and be- way before 48 she said we us christians muslims jews we loved each other we lived so peacefully everything was great until israel's independence Everything was great for you. We were always, I'll give you an example, personal example. And this is way later. My grandfather in 1987, both of them, both of my parents' fathers were taken from their beds at three in the morning and put in jail. And guess why? The economy in Syria was very bad at the time. And they figured that it was the Jewish business owners because it always is, right? Um... They took every Jewish male business owner from their home in the middle of the night and put them in jail for about six months. My grandma, for her to be able to go visit him, she would bring her jewelry and gold and money just to give to the officer to be able to see her husband. This is the type of peace that they're talking about. Complying, having to suck up to them, having to be, you know, keep our mouths shut be peaceful, like be, you know, peaceful, um, do what we have to do in our little communities and just listen. That That's, that's what was peaceful for them. Many people will say that throughout, um, you know, Arab and Jewish relations throughout history have been peaceful. Yeah, there were pockets of peace. It was, it was, there was peace, but that was because we shut our mouths and did what we had to do. Uh, it wasn't, it, Imagine this. In America, black people didn't have rights. They had to sit. They couldn't go to, into certain stores. They couldn't, you know, stand trial or have equal um, equal rights overall. It was the same way for Jewish people or even Christians or any minorities in the Arab world. Many times we weren't allowed to build our synagogues higher than um, their mosques. We couldn't walk on the same sidewalks as them. We, we were dimmies. The dimmie status was we pay our tax to be able to survive. Because if you're not going to convert to Islam, then you're going to pay us to be able to keep keep doing your traditions and your religion and whatever it is. And that's what it was. We had to just be quiet. And that was the peaceful part. They'll tell you it was peaceful because it was peaceful for them. They had, you know, they weren't the ones going through it. Of course, it's peaceful. Like, imagine a white person today telling you, like, it was so peaceful back then when we had we could buy people to do all our crop work. Like, like obviously, obviously, it was peaceful for you. It, yeah, I, I just I don't know. I don't know. 
Well, the good news is now Israel exists and it's not going anywhere. So, and we've got like people like you educating people. I think bringing people who are Jewish, like bring them the history. I'm not Jewish. I try to bring the history to, yeah. you know, non-Jews and Jews. But yeah, hopefully this will help them, right? Of course. I give it up. I think speaking, I think speaking about this is very important. Um, and I always, I always, um, people always ask me, why are you so like proud to be Syrian? I tell them I'm not proud to be Syrian per se. I'm proud to be a Syrian Jew. Being a Syrian Jew means that I'm not erasing that history. I'm going to keep it going. I'm going to keep it through my children, my grandchildren. They're going to know because, and I hope this doesn't sound bad, but people have a notion that Israel exists because of the Holocaust. It doesn't. Israel, our yearning for Israel has been way before then. The Zionist political movement even started way before then. We had those aspirations in the Middle East too, as Jews, and in Ethiopia, and in North Africa, and all over the world. So I think our experience, and obviously, you know, we thank God weren't a part of the Holocaust, I think our experience got overshadowed and put to rest. And that's why the world is so misinformed um, on the actual culture of Israel. You'll hear a lot of people saying that these Jews stole everything from the Arabs and, and put it in Israel. It's a bunch of white people eating falafel. My parents ate falafel <laughs> in the Middle East. We, did, we weren't eating pizza and hamburgers. That's not what we were eating. We were eating the same food that the Arab were for thousands of years. Um, so f- when people say we steal culture or we steal language or music, it's it needs to be known. Sixty <laughs> percent of Israel—that is our culture. That is what we eat. We've been eating it. That is the music that we listen to. People are also unaware that many people, just like in America, they say a lot of Jews in you know in Hollywood. A lot of Jews were also very big in the Middle East for music and acting. And a lot of very famous musicians came out of uh, the Jewish people in the Middle East. Um, And it's just funny to me that they'll praise these people and say, like, our music or, you know, and many of the people who even created those tunes came from Iraqi Jews or Egyptian Jews or people from Yemen, like a lot of the Yemeni music, which is so beautiful, comes from the Jewish people in Yemen. Um, And that just needs to be known. I think people just don't understand the dynamic, the the ethnic part of Israel and where it comes from and, you know, where we get all our foods from and how it's such a, I think it's a melting pot because of how many of us brought all these cultures in and put it into one and made it the Israeli culture. I think that's what like really bothers people is that we brought all of our things into it and we built such a successful country, not we, but you know, the Jewish people. Um, and I think that needs to be known by many people too. I think um, they need to know this, you know, Jews don't only come from Europe. Jews are not white Jews. You know, a lot of us are cultured, as they say, we're... We, we come from different parts of the world. We brought a lot of things with us. We, you know, we we all dress differently. Yeah, but now it's like we're all back together. We 
got over our differences. We, you know, and that's the most beautiful part about Israel, I think, in my opinion, is how the, you know, of course, in the beginning, it was so hard with everyone's differences to to live. Of course, there was many different things that happened. Um, but the way now that everybody's so integrated and have come together and we all have the same Jewish traditions, like, I'll tell you, in America, a lot of us are separated um, by Jewish communities just because we're comfortable with, you know, the people we know and the communities we know. But if you go to Israel, you have Ashkenazis marrying Mizrahis. Pretty much most of the people our age today have are half Ashkenaz, half Mizrahi. Or, you know, my family is also almost fully mixed in. So the way we've been able to, in such a short time, just come together and like put our differences aside. Of course, there's a lot of work to be done everywhere in the world, but the way we've, you know, just come together as a Jewish people and as a people, as Israelis, it's the most beautiful part of Israel to me, to be honest, like how we just, after thousands of years of being separated, speaking different languages, and then just, we took our common language and we built a country. Like it's insane to think about. It's awesome. cool. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Well, thank That's you. So, no, thank you so much. I think this is a really good informative episode. I think people are really going to like this, especially like American Jews who maybe are Ashkenazi. Like, I think that yeah. they're going to learn a lot from this. So thank you so much again. I'll take you in the description. Um, is there anything else you want to promote? Um, keep fighting the good fight. <laughs> That's it. That's what I do it for. There's no payments or anything, but right. keep fighting the good fight. Keep getting the word out there. Keep having the conversations. Don't let it die down because it's not a trend. This is our livelihood, our people. Um, and we need to keep doing it the best way we can. Awesome. Well, thank you so thank much you for having me. Of course. All right, guys. So I hope you really enjoyed that conversation with Renzi, really focusing on Mizrahi Jews and especially her family's history, you know, living in Syria after most Jews had left. Um, I think that that was a really fascinating way to look at it. Now we're going to turn gears a little bit and we're going to talk to Maz, who is Arab Muslim Jordanian. And he I, I I really enjoyed my conversation with Renzi and I really enjoyed my conversation with Maz. Um, kind of to talk about the Arab perspective. So Renzi and I were talking a lot about like how the Arabs feel in in the Arab world and stuff or throughout the Levant. Well, why don't we just hear from an Arab, right? Like someone who lives there as well. Now I'm gonna say that Maz was educated in the West and grew up in the West and he or um in the West a little bit and he didn't grow up in the West. He grew up in Jordan, but he um spends a lot of time in Australia and he we get into his his background and stuff in the episode. So I don't think that his opinion is the majority opinion by any means, but he talks about the mentalities that they have. And it's very fascinating. I can't wait for you to listen. So without further ado, we'll get into that. All right, welcome back to the Great Work Podcast. Today we have Maz, and Maz and I met through my TikTok. Um, he comes on lives. Maz considers himself pro-Palestine. He is Jordanian, and he has some really interesting insight on being an Arab in the Levant that I think you guys are all really going to um, like to hear. So Maz, do you want to tell a little bit about yourself? 
Yeah. Um, um, basically, I, uh, I grew up in Jordan. I am full-blooded Jordanian. Um, I studied in Jordan as a bachelor degree, but I've done higher degrees in Western countries, mainly UK and Australia. So I've been exposed to both uh, societies. Uh, I like to read, of course, uh, and uh, I'm a sort of an academic, so I like to have an academic insight on, you know, the environments around me. Um, me being pro-Palestinian, I'm just to, you know, clarify that I'm pro-Palestinian civilians only. Other f forms of violent resistance, of course, as you know, let's put it that way. Uh, so, um, um, but I'm very critical, highly critical of my culture because, uh, to be uh, honest with yourself, you have to also be how uh, you have to identify the 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 faults in your own culture, and um, that's what I would like to discuss. So, I am uh, not an expert on the conflict. There are more guests that you had that are way more experienced and read about the uh, conflict and more experience, I would say, about my culture. So that's what I would, uh, you know, like to discuss today. Definitely. Well, I'm excited to discuss. Um, so you sent me a list here of things that you kind of want to talk about regarding that culture. And I think I'm excited to talk to you about this because I find that people on the pro-Israel side will say things that are critical of Arab culture. And I know there are very beautiful things from Arab culture, but there are things that are a little bit not unexpected. But if Westerners talk about it, people shut us down. And um, one of those, I think, is kind of the repressive beliefs there. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So with uh, growing up in a repressive culture, um uh, basically, we lack a lot of freedoms that uh, Westerners, Westerners enjoy. And uh, most of my people blame that on the governments. So we call, they call it like we are ruled by repressive governments, which is not far from the truth. But um, growing, up, growing up in a repressive culture, you will see that this sort of, um, you know, these values, repressive values, they, they stem from the individuals of themselves all the way up to uh, the populace, the whole populace. So you don't just see repressive uh, behavior in the governments only. You see it in the shops, you see it in homes, you see it over with, uh, where how people deal with each other on a personal level. So it's uh, endemic to our culture, being repressive, being um, anti uh, everybody who's not like you. That is endemic in our culture. Um, so uh, let's let, let me give you an example. If you debate any or most Arabs or most people of my culture, and you sound an opinion that you disagree with, and you are part of that culture, so I'm a fellow Arab disagreeing with that, I, I will be either immediately called a traitor, or an agent of the West, or paid by the West, right? So, and I've heard that so many times when I provide an opposing opinion. So. It cannot be at all that I am someone who's different, who had different life experiences, read different books, formed different opinions. No, I must be um, either paid agent or trader because otherwise, how would I not? How would I then disagree with you, right? So when you believe in app, you're being, you know, absolutely right about everything. Anybody who proposes a different opinion or a counter argument, they cannot be correct. They have to be traders. They have to be, and that's one of the culture phenomena that you will you will observe when debate when arabs debate other arabs they are always called traitors and that carry out carries out to politics right 
when uh, that person who's calling me a traitor agent, if that person becomes, uh, if that person holds political power, I will be put in jail. Not because I formed a different opinion, it's because I'm a traitor agent or paid, right? So that's how these beliefs uh, in, on an individual level carry out to uh, the political um, uh, levels. This is how, you know, political, that's why we have uh, politi political prisoners. Not because they form a different opinion, is because their opinions must be because they were paid or they're an agent of, you know, the West or whatever country that we're against. Um, the second one is that the principles of freedom, uh, we absolutely do not believe in individual freedoms unless these freedoms, they serve our purpose. So, for example, if you see um, here on the news that France banned the niqab or the hijab, we immediately jump on the personal freedom, like, you know, wearing these, uh, this attire is an attack on personal freedoms, right? Mm -hmm. But when we do, when we enforce it back home, we enforce the hijab or niqab like uh, countries used to be in Saudi Arabia, now it's abolished. Um, that's not attacking personal freedom. When you force someone to wear that, that's not attack on personal freedom. So we're very biased of our understanding of freedom is freedom is good and it's correct only when it serves us. But when it doesn't serve us, then it's fine to do away with it. So these are basically some of the characteristics of our repressive culture. And um, that's basically, I don't want to jump to topics, but that's why you see uh, a lot of conflict in our countries, because uh, even on an individual level, we can't hold a conversation, which means on a collective level, we still cannot hold a conversation. We still cannot have a discussion. So the only way to settle our differences is through fights. So that is why you see a lot of uh, conflict in the Middle East. It's because even on an individual level, People do not believe in the other opinion and the opposing opinion. They do not believe in difference. That's so interesting. Do you think that that stems from just cultural differences, even with living in, an, in a majority Islamic country? I know Islam translated stands for to submit, correct? Yeah. And so to submit to the word of Allah. Um, so anything that, it, and, and I think governments in the Middle East are, very much tied to religion, much more so than the West, many parts of the West anyways. So going against the government there, it's almost like you're going against God. And that obviously in a culture that seeks to submit to the word of God would cause, yeah, that well, would- Well, in terms of governance, uh, Arab governments are a mix of secular and religious uh, laws. Mm -hmm. um, they have to- uh, sort of provide lip service towards, you know, uh, to religion just to, you know, enforce their legitimacy as a government. Um, but uh, if you fully enforce religious law, uh, then you will end up like countries like Afghanistan, for example. So our countries are way more modernized, way more progressive than Afghanistan. And the reason for that is we have a mix. And um, the religious laws are mostly confined in inheritance and in marriage where are the you know the on um when it matters of economy uh things like that it's uh, it's mostly secular laws but you have to provide always lip service like in jordan for example we say that our laws are derived from the islamic values and the teachings of islam but if you look at the law it's mostly secular and that's why jordan is doing well as a country you know comparative to being in a, a muslim country 
Um, so that's that's the kind of the dynamics that's going when. Uh, but yes, much of the let's say the repressive culture is uh, born from our um, uh, climate. We live in a desert climate that is resource scarce. Uh, and we evolved to be competitive, to be uh, sort of, you know, tribal and anti the other tribe because of the lack of the sources. There wasn't abundance for everyone to uh, progress beyond these, uh, let's say, uh, uh, regressive uh, uh, beliefs. And also when Islam came, Islam was inspired by the culture then. Mm-hmm. and uh, also enforce some of the beliefs. The problem with the, the religion is that they made these beliefs set in stone for ages to come. So now when there's, um, let's say, abundance, especially in the Arab Peninsula, uh, you see the same values remain when there was scarcity before they discovered oil and everything because Islam, it set these values in stone for generations to come. So even a thousand years from now, uh, if our religion remains, uh, my religion remains dominant, these values will remain set in stone. And that is the problem that made it, it made these values that were appropriate, let's say, to that time, made it eternal. Wow. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, that I've never heard it put that way. I studied this in college. I never had a professor and many Muslim professors. I never had that. I never heard them put it that way. That's um, true. It may, I don't want to criticize them. Maybe they don't know, or maybe they just don't want to be blunt about it. Uh, but that is uh, that is how it is. I've, of course, read in the history. And uh, like, just to give a, like an example for, for the khimar, which is the niqab, the full cover, uh, it was not Islamic. It was um, basically women wore that because in the, the desert's climate, you get a lot of sand, right? So when you travel to so that you don't get covered in sand, you wear all of that, right? So Islam adopted that and made it sort of a religious uh, dress code. And this is how it carried, now it carries, like you live in cities, it's all, you know, asphalt and laid out. It's, you're not getting the same exposure to sand like before. And there's Muslim countries that live in, you know, you know, in agricultural, let's say in less harsher climates, but they still wear that, right? There's people wearing that in Britain. Right, where there's no sad. So yeah. uh, that that is well, an example where culture have inspired Islam, and then Islam set it in stone for generations to come, even when it's no longer needed. That that dress code is that dress uh, that attire is no longer needed. That that's even true with like Sunni and Shia Islam. Like, isn't Shia Islam more um, inspired by Zoroastrianism from Persia prior to the birth of Islam? Uh, they have some practices that are inspired by that, but their main inspiration, uh, the Shia Muslim, is a political division mm-hmm. uh, between uh, Imam Ali and Muawiyah uh, uh, Yazid. So it was a political fight. It was a struggle for power between two factions, the faction that is called the household of the Prophet, which are the immediate family of Prophet Muhammad, and uh, um, another faction, which is from another uh, another family called Bani Umayyah. And the fight between these, uh, the clash between these two factions for power is what gave r- r- rise to the Shia sect. Mm-hmm. So the Shias are pro the household 
and the Sunnis kind of sort of accept all and they are pragmatic about it. Who won became the caliph and that's it. But the Shias are very much opposed to anybody who fought the household for power. So that's the main inspiration of the, the Shia. Uh, just to give a little bit of a, a note on the Shias and um, uh, their sect or their set of beliefs, although historic, historically more accurate than what the Sunnis are saying, um, it creates uh, created a mass PTSD, if I may put it. So when you're just as soon as you're a child that can speak and understand things, you're told, oh, by the way, you know, there was this family that uh, is the family of the prophet. They are a sacred family and they got, you know, uh, butchered by the Bani Umayyah family. And Hussein, who was the, you know, mm, let's say the, the principal of the Shia sect, um, had got murdered on the battlefield and um, you know, and that's why many of their practices is crying over what happened for thousands of years later. They're still crying over Hussein dying that way. So it created a lot of, you create, you give children PTSD. And that's why I find the Shia controlled areas, uh, really hard to work with, um, very aggressive towards Sunnis, towards, of course, the Jews and everyone else. That's a, just a side note on the Shias, but we're not going to uh, get into that. There are more people experienced uh, on that kind of sect than I am. That's really interesting, too. Again, another thing I never heard a professor say. I'm from a very Muslim area. I'm from Minneapolis. We have a lot of Somalians who are primarily Sunni Muslims. So mm -hmm. um, where I'm from is more Sunni. Um, but to get back to the kind of list you gave me, another thing you brought up was the intent above competence. Do you want to talk a little bit about yeah. that set of social norms and values? Yeah, so let's, uh, for example, take uh, the Israelis or the Americans as an example. When uh, you have a leader that uh, shows incompetence or failure in a war or failure in governance, they're immediately uh, demonized and they are sort of kicked out of uh, the, you know, of political office or at least they're fought against, resisted. Uh, one of the problems in my culture is that we value your intentions and your beliefs over your competence. So let's take Egypt with uh, Abdel Nasser, right? Uh, before the Six Days War, in preparation for the Six Days War, Egypt had more arms, more men, uh, more uh, militarily, they were superior to Israel. Israel, at the, during Six Days War, I believe, did not have the United States as a friend like they do have it now. <laughs> so... Um, and what happened is even though Egypt was preparing for war, was, you know, anticipating it, Israelis managed to surprise and just uh, destroy 30, 40% of uh, Egypt's capabilities uh, and sort of a blitzkrieg attack, right? Um, so uh, Abdel Nasser, he said, okay, we lost the war and I'm going to uh, resign from office because of this massive, massive failure. What did the people do? They went in the streets, they protested, they want him to remain in, in office, right? Because they valued his principle, him being this hero more than his actual competence. If that leader was in Israel, he'd be in the, you know, in the blacklist or uh, blacklisted or he'd be in the bad side of the history books and the Israeli society forever because he lost a major war and he lost it so terribly, right? And even right now, after the 7th of October, although Israelis are winning, 
they're still critical of the government of why you've allowed the attack to happen in the first place. They're not saying, oh, Netanyahu, you're great, awesome job you're doing in Gaza. They're saying, why did you allow the 7th of October happen? So that's the difference between us and them. And that, again, we do not put too much value on competence. And that's why we, we remain sort of uh, inferior in many aspects of civilization in terms of military, in terms of technology, in terms of... Uh, uh, you know, being, uh, let's say, progressive as a nation. This is my my belief, yeah. Yeah, the six-day war has been talked about a lot on TikTok now because the latest pro-Pally talking point that people have brought up is that actually Israel started the six-day war. But I just want to clarify for people listening, the six-day war was started because Russia told Egypt that they believed Israel was getting ready to attack Egypt. And then they said, just kidding. We And then that's when Nasser started getting ready for the war. And then Russia said, never mind. We don't think Israel's getting ready to attack you. And he said, well, we're already ready. So he blocked the Strait of Tehran, which after the Suez crisis in 1956, um, the Western nations and Israel said, OK, you're never going to block the Strait of Tehran again because that's a very important waterway. So when Egypt did that, that started the war. And how Egypt was able to surprise attack them. This is one of my favorite th- one of my favorite things I've ever learned about this conflict. Israel printed in all of their newspapers in that all of the pilots were on vacation, huh. and so um, Egypt and all of these other neighboring states said, "Hey, they're well, they're not going to attack in the next few days because all the pilots are on vacation." And that's when Israel went and struck all of the air capabilities of Egypt. Jordan, I believe, maybe Iraq, Syria, Lebanon. I don't know. Uh, I'm, 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 uh, like, I don't want to uh, say something wrong and embarrass myself. I'm not via uh, in the details of the war, so I'll just remain silent on that one. <laughs> but uh, I'm just saying, like, in terms of what happened after the aftermath, like someone who yes. loses a war like that, even a war they're prepared for, because mm-hmm. Nabil was not preparing for peace, he was preparing for war. So whatever the, let's say, your enemy says or does, you still have to be, you know, on full readiness, right? Your military has to be on full readiness, and it wasn't because they lacked competence. But the people didn't judge them for it. Even right now, he's considered a hero. Even after his death, he's considered one of the heroes of Egypt, even though he lost a war in a very, very terrible manner. So that's why, and this is remains the case, we always put... You know, if you are a good person or you say you're a good person, doesn't matter how incompetent you are, we want you in power. And that is why, one of the reasons why, um, you know, our natural development keeps being tackled because of who we elect or who we choose to become leaders when we get the chance to choose, of course. That's another matter. Yeah. And that goes into your next point of the lack of democratic values. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, so um, there's, you know, if we want to list democratic values, of course, it's a long list. Um, Majority rule, rule of law, um, you know, representation, representative government, etc. But I want to get into two uh, ones that really, uh, you know, uh, hit the core of what happens in our culture. The first one is the separation of powers, right? Uh, In uh, in our culture, we believe in the one-man show. Right, because we we are raised um, during schools on uh, ancient Muslim heroes like Saladin, for example. Saladin he liberated Jerusalem from the Crusaders, right? 
Of course, it wasn't Saladin. It was a system back then that Saladin was part of. But he gets he gets all the credit because that's easy. Then analyzing what system led to defeating the Crusaders. No, it's just Saladin, right? So you'll see people very lazily saying, "Just we if we only get to another Saladin in this age of time, we're going to liberate Jerusalem again." So it's just one man that's going to solve the problem. So we have this deep belief in one man show, and the catastrophic result of that is when we build a political structure, a government structure uh, that uh, has all the separation of powers that like the West has, one person can get into political office, get the top job and uh, absolutely control everything, destroy all these uh, all this government structure and create a one-man show instead of a government that ha or a, a ruling entity that has separation of powers. That is exceptionally difficult in the United States. Not one, even the most hawkish of presidents could cannot pull that off. Like even when Donald Trump tried to say the elections were rigged and people were, and they uh, stormed uh, Capitol Hill, I believe, the institutions were stronger than the people. The institutions uh, repelled the attack and maintained the the governing structure of the United States did not did not collapse because of one man. But that Donald Trump can do that in Jordan. They 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 can do it in Syria. They can do it in Iraq because it was done in Syria. It was done in Iraq when Saddam he got into power. He got power through a party. And what and everyone knows what he did to member his own members of the party and uh, transferred the rule from a, a party rule to a family rule. Right where his family rules everything. Same was done in Syria. Half uh, uh, as I said, he got through uh, the the party, and then he what he he did the party after, and he put his family instead. Right, a lot of his party members were, um, you know, jailed, summarily executed, etc. And then his family became the ruling family. So. And the people tolerate that because they love Saddam. They loved half of the, at the time. So we are very, as people, we are very tolerant to one man's show. And the separation of powers mean nothing to us. The nothing. The other thing is the peaceful transfer of power. This is the other point that I wanted to mention. Is that's a principle, a core principle in democracy that we do not believe in. We do not understand and we do not live by. Um, uh, democratic elections, by the way, form, I would say, all the parties, political parties in all the Arab world, whether left-leaning or right-leaning, is a bridge to cross and then burn, right? So uh, you'll see in throughout our history, a lot of parties got to um, won the elections, and as soon as they won the elections, they started destroying the democratic process so that no one would succeed them but themselves. Mm -hmm. And the only way that they would give out power is through war, because again, they do not believe in the peaceful transfer of power. Now, if you go and interview any of uh, you know uh, the politicians that belong to these parties, they will tell you, of course, we believe in elections. Of course, we believe in the democratic process because they're a political party. They have to live under the umbrella of the of democracy. But they'll tell you the opposing party, if they get uh, get into power, the country will be destroyed. That's why we cannot allow them under any circumstance to win elections or to gain power. Now, that's the same thing that gets said in the uh, in Western uh, parties, but they do not uh, uh, escalate it to war to prevent the other party. I'm sure the, the, the Democrats, they believe 
you know, the Republicans uh, that they'll destroy the country and vice versa, but they will still accept the, the principle of the transfer of power. They will not destroy the structure just to save the country from the Republicans and vice versa. We do that. <laughs> and there was many times where the, like, for example, in Gaza, when uh, Hamas uh, won elections, they canceled the elections after they got in power because, again, elections was a bridge to to power that you cross, and after you cross, you burn that bridge, which means you didn't believe in these democratic values. For you, it was just means to an end, not a principle to live by. Right. Yeah, and then they killed all of their political opponents as well. Oh, yeah, they threw them and they yeah, threw them off buildings, yeah. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's uh yeah it's uh I don't I like I'm I'm not gonna say I'm an expert and how to solve these issues I'm just pointing them out I guess. Well yeah I mean listen, no one's been able to solve them yet so I don't think I don't think experts know how because I mean if an expert knew how they would fix it but no one can fix it you know you can opine on what you think can happen and I could but it it's. It's a problem that exists, right? I mean, I guess, do you think democracy is conducive with the culture in the Middle East overall? Uh, not sure what you mean, sorry. That's okay. Like, do you think that a democracy could, like, do you think democracy is a system that Middle Eastern countries should pursue? Uh, absolutely not. Not that it's time. I think they should uh, pursue it from the bottom up. So... The culture of democracy has to be instilled within the people first. Mm -hmm. And when the people embrace the culture of democracy, then uh, the sh there should be a shift towards democracy. Um, yeah. But you have a catch-22 because we have authoritarian governments that have the power to, you know, uh, change the education system, try to influence the culture into democracy. But that is counter to their uh, interests yeah. because they're authoritative governments. But the only one that can do it is the authoritative governments, right? So the only maybe way is for people themselves through, you know, the abundance of information over the internet, you know, traveling to Western countries themselves waking up and say, uh, the problem is not just our government, the problem is ourselves and we need to start with ourselves, you know? We're not the Swedish people uh, living under the Assad regime. We are uh, Assad-like people ruled by the Assad regime. And that is the point to change is from us, the people first. Um, but right now I am very much pro authoritative governments because um, again, um, you saw what happened in, for example, the invasion of Iraq. What happened with that is uh, Bush, he um, projected Western ideas to Iraq. He said, you know, Iraq are Iraqi people are just like us Americans. Uh, freedom, democracy, loving Americans. And we, if we just free them from that government, they'll become just like us. The main point that he missed is that the Iraqi people are culturally repressive and they hold the values of their government. May They might not know it. They might not uh, admit it, but they do have uh, share these uh, the values that uh, their government share. And that's why when he liberated them, let's say from that government, uh, they started a war between each other. <clears throat> Same with because the they don't believe in democratic values and elections and everything. And yes, they have now uh, an elected government, and an elected prime minister, but it's all from a, a single sect. And uh, there's like 100 or 200 militias acting above the law because they do not believe in the ideas of their government. So it's a Pandora box that was opened, right? 
Um, but because the the American government at the time they projected Western uh, values, they said, "Oh, these people are definitely like us. They're Westernized. They're just victims of their government." They didn't realize that the problem is also in the people, and you need to re-educate the people to create a society like the American or other Western societies. It, in America, we really they want either. Well, they think that it's all like as long as the populace is educated, but they don't look at what they're educated with. And in the West, we also want to spread democracy to people because I think we in the West are the way we are. And we think democracy predated the way we are. But you're right. It was bottom up. We had a revolution against the British um, colonizers, I guess. Um, Or we were the colonizer. I don't know. But we you know we had a revolution against that and it has permeated up until now and you know we take it for granted but we we were especially throughout the arab spring we were thinking oh all throughout north africa and the middle east they'll all be democracies and once they're democracies they won't fight anymore there's this like belief that i don't agree with that democracies don't go to war with each other i don't i mean yeah so but what happened you got wars everywhere because <laughs> uh, all these uh, powerful factions, they uh, will not sit down and have a conversation. They will uh, not even submit to elections where one of them would lose to the power of the people or the will of the people. So once, because they refused that principle, they had to fight, right? And even if they if they all submitted to the to elections and one faction won, it will go and destroy the process and then destroy the other factions to make sure that uh, they remain a one-party political system like other countries that we could name. Yeah. So your last point on this is tolerance to corruption and its reasons. This kind of goes into what you were talking before. Yeah. This is, <laughs> yes. Uh, this, is, this comes down to uh, values that we lack and we lack by large. Uh, the first value that we lack is respect for our fellow humans. Uh, we do not have that value. Um, that stems from the belief in martyrdom, I believe, which we will discuss later if you have the time, of course. Yep. Um, but the second one is we lack total respect for the rule of law. So I say that you can right now bring the constitution of Sweden, right, or of the United States and apply it and make it the official constitution of an Arab country. That will not change it one bit because we'll not read the constitution. We will uh, not abide by it even if we read it. For us, the rule of law means absolutely nothing. And that is a tragedy. Uh, so let me, uh, so uh, yes, governments, authoritative governments, they don't believe in human rights. They're ready to abuse that if their power is threatened, that's correct. And they don't respect the rule of law. Or they don't respect the constitution. They will amend the constitution even if it serves their purposes. Like there and many other countries where the constitution restricts the your term, how many terms you can serve. They go and amend that and make it even more terms so that they remain in power. So there's no respect to the constitution, right? It's just a paper that you make sure it's designed to help you. Now, but if you take that, I give that as a, an example because a lot of people in my culture they criticize the government for that. I say, okay. Do you believe in uh, human rights or do you care for fellow humans? Do you um, respect the rule of law? Uh, okay, go right now and stand, let's say, on a street, on a passenger, uh, sorry, on a pedestrian crossing, right? And see how many cars will 
obey the law and stop for you to cross. No car will, because these drivers who are citizens, they don't believe in your human value. They might, they are willing to take the risk of actually uh, hitting you with a car instead of just stopping and then restarting their car again. And they don't respect the law. And the laws clearly state if you are not crossing, you cars have to stop. So we have the same law as Western countries. It's just we don't follow it because we don't respect it. So when, as Arab countries, when we talk about the international law and everything that, that's you'll see in every conflict, we abide by, but we don't abide by a single international law or a human rights law. We violate all these laws in and out just to basically win or defeat the other side. Uh, the the age group will never ever, as you can see, will abide by any international law. Whether, whether Even if it was a signatory to that law, it will not abide by it. It doesn't make a difference whether we're signatories or not signatories. We don't respect that. And that and these are one of the principles of corruption, that you don't care for your human beings and you do not care for the rule of law. So you see corruption on all levels of government. You see corruption the, in, among the families, even. Families try to steal other the inheritance rights of other family members, especially women. So many families that I've experienced, uh, fortunately are not mine though, that uh, the brothers try to store of steal um, the inheritance share of their sisters, counter to Sharia law, which states that the sisters have a share. It's not equal, it's half, but that's a, their share. They even violate Sharia law to get the money. So. Um, basically that is, again, what makes us so corrupt as societies. It's endemic again, not just in the government, but in the culture. I keep saying we're not the Swiss, Swiss people, you know, living under an authoritative government. We are an authoritarian people living under an authoritative government. And, and I, that all goes back to, I think what you said of the growing out of cultural norms under a society of scarcity, but now there's abundance. Mm -hmm. it, it, that is one of the most profound things I've ever heard someone say, especially on this podcast. So thank you for that. That's thank you. amazing. Appreciate it. And I think that there's two. So I talked to Renzi previously in this episode about tribalism and how prevalent that is in the Middle East. And so if you want to talk a little bit about that, along with the religious belief component of it. Okay. Um, so what tribal belief is we put blood uh, before ideas and we always do that. So even in like when you ch uh, like look at elections, uh, uh, Senate elections, let's say, uh, I don't want to use the bad, wrong vocabs, uh, but I'm not politically savvy, but let's say you go to senators and then you see their platform, their ideas, or let's say presidential candidates, you follow their ideas uh what yep. what party they side on which and parties are are built on ideas right so to, in our culture we are full of tribes and tribal blood before ideas so i will vote for my cousin to get into power against someone that let's say have better more progressive ideas or ideas that are better for the interest of the country as a whole right and we always do that again and again so with uh like if you have a look for example at the Jordanian parliament, it's made of influential tribes, representative of influential tribes. They got the seats because the tribe, their family, their extended family, they voted for them. And uh, in Jordan, we have very large tribes. You know, some tribes are 200,000 people and a country of 10, 10 million. So you're talking really large tribes. 
Now we have the same structure for elections that the U.S. has, and if any, let's say UN official wants to observe these elections, they're fair and they are in accordance with with the law. But who gets voted? It's the people with the biggest families. Because again, I will vote for this person who shares my last name. I don't care what his intentions are. He might be corrupt. It doesn't matter. I will vote for that person because how dare I vote for someone that I agree that is running on a, a platform, idea of platform, uh, sorry, a platform of ideas. And that's why even most um, candidates, they don't even have a program no more because they don't need it. Because they know that whether they have a program or they don't have a program, they're going to be elected by their tribe. So it's just a cake that we divide among tribes. Uh, it's not a, um, any effort to progress the country with better ideas and with people who run on a platform of you know changes to how to make the country better. And that is endemic, uh, again, in our society. Now, going to the, into the religious beliefs, um, uh, I want to just mention three things, uh, in, uh, uh, that are problematic to our religious beliefs or from religion is martyrdom, uh, which again, I mentioned that it downgrades our respect for human life or the sanctity of a human life. Because if you die, not just in battle, if you die as a victim of a battle, you become a martyr and martyrs go to heaven, right? So that is why you see when, uh, for example, conflicts between previous conflicts between Gaza and uh, Israel, uh, you know, uh, Gaza kills like 50 Israelis, Israel kills like 3,000, 5,000 Gazans. And when the, that round of violence ends, the, the, uh, the Gazans, they declare victory. How is it a victory? You've lost like 3,000 people and you've only killed 50 of your enemy. That's a major defeat. But because they consider all these people as martyrs, so their life value is uh, basically zero. And they won because they all they killed 50 of the enemy. When you go to the Israel side, they're not declaring as a victory. They're actually furious. How come we lost 50 people, right? Because they have value. They, they um, consider every citizen as a person of value. Their life matters. Their life is sacred. And we don't. That's why um, basically the concept of martyrdom has cheapened um, our uh, you know our lives as humans, and that what goes into the principles of corruption. Where uh, when you have when martyrdom says okay, it maybe directly or indirectly instills that belief that human life doesn't is not sacred that much, then you don't value the. Um, the, the life of your fellow humans, which makes you more corrupt or more prone to corruption. That's, I think, uh, the connection that I would make between the two. Um, uh, sorry, do we have more time or do we have yeah, time limit? Yeah, no no yeah. time limit. We can okay. go as long as we All right. So I'll just cover the the, the last few points. There's a, a, a thing that I think Westerners do not know and they think that we're more dangerous than we are really because of that so um and that that comes to extremism um my society is extremist yes that's correct uh if you put on a survey uh, do you believe in killing apostates do you believe in let's say uh throwing homosexuals etc all these atrocious beliefs um 
then you will see a lot of people saying yes to these or they they agreeing. So on paper, we're very extreme uh, extremist people, and that is correct. But there's a phenomenon that Westerners do not realize because it, it's not in their value system, it's not in their culture, and that is what I call posturing, right? Uh, now, because uh, our religious beliefs, they set a very, very extreme standard to become a true Muslim. You have to disrupt your life. You have to maybe, you know, sacrifice your well-being, the, the well-being of your family to go fight and probably die young in, in service of the cause to be a true Muslim, right? And if you disagree with any of these things, then you're not a Muslim. So you become sort of a an unbeliever. So because the sheer majority of people, they do not want to sacrifice their life. They want to raise their children. They want to have jobs. They want to have a, even a better life, right? And they do not want to disrupt their lives because of their belief. They have this sort of, they develop this sort of posturing where you say you talk all the talk, but you do nothing of the walk, right? So yes, you'll see people like, yes, you know, Shahada, yes, martyrdom, yes, let's go fight the Israelis and all country, Arab countries should now go and rescue Gaza by force. But then how many of these people are actually getting off their chair and doing anything about it? Almost yeah. zero, right? Um, uh, I'll give you an example. There was a Shia militia that uh, wanted to join the fight to help Gaza and they tried to cross through the Jordanian border. Now, let's say Shias, they have control over Lebanon borders, they have control over Syrian borders, and they can cross from there easy if they really wanted to go and fight. But they chose Jordan, a country that has a treaty, a non-aggression treaty with Israel that they know will not let them in. And we stopped them at the border and we didn't let them in. Now, they know that because they want day of them, you know, of their incursion into Israel, Israel, right? So they went to a country that they know will not allow them in because they want to be held. They want to say, I want to fight. But please keep, you know, holding me and preventing me, right? So that's what posturing is. So you see that a lot of people, they uh, the, they posture. They say really bad things, really extremist things. But when it comes to their effort, their action, they're just posturing because they don't really want to disrupt their lives for these kind of beliefs. But again, the other way is to disagree with it, which makes them unbelievers. So posturing is sort of the balance they find between doing the thing and not disagreeing uh, with it or disagree with it, if that makes sense. Definitely. Yeah. I uh, our Americans understood that. Yeah. So but because Americans, they project their values on the, that's something that you cannot, that no human cannot do or cannot fall in, which is I read something about the culture. I project my values of what I would do. And then I say, oh, the people must be doing that. So in Western culture, if you believe by a principle, you live by it, right? But so when you say, and uh, that's mostly, I may be generalizing and I may be mistaken, that is fine. But what I would say, they project that, especially the American military, like who, because I read, I, I watch a lot of their podcasts, the American, especially the special forces. So they truly the ones who live by their beliefs, right? And they expect the same or project the same to to extremists, right, or Arabs or Muslims. They say, okay, if they believe on those these, let's say, semi-evil or extremist ideas, they all must be doing extremist things because they live by the ideas like we do live by our ideas. But that's not true because most people they posture, they say it all, 
but they do none of it because they want to still raise their kids. They want good jobs and they want to uh, see their, uh, you know, children grow and make get married and have their grandchildren, etc. They just want to live like other people, but they have to posture because of the very extreme bar that religion sets for us to be, be true Muslims, right? Um, but that doesn't mean that the extremists are a minority. And that brings me to a concept that I propose. It's called the pyramid of extremism, right? Because again, it's, uh, you know, we, as humans, we fall on a normal distribution. More of us do things average or believe in things aver on average as, you know, an average. But there are like standard deviations, the way you get the extremist people who actually do the things that they believe in. Now, the permanent extremism, I say, like whenever a Muslim says, um, a fellow Muslim comes and say, oh, you know, I they're a minority. There are just 30,000 people, fighters or terrorists. We're two billion, so they don't represent us. Well, to that I say there's something called the pyramid of extremism. Yes, there's 30,000 people on the field who left their families to support the cause and whose life expectancy dropped to maybe six months or less, right? But beneath these people, there's a layer, right, or a tier where there's, let's say, 300,000 people that are actively supporting them without, let's say, putting their immediate lives in danger. And there's three uh, million people underneath that that are extremely sympathetic and may donate to their cause. And then there's 30 million people who are just sympathetic to their cause. So there's a huge base that is not a minority. Between, uh, when you get 30,000 people who are uh, doing all these atrocious things, that doesn't just come from a peaceful society. It has to boil up, boil up, all boil up, all the way to get to the tip of the pyramid, right? Uh, you know, you you're, you can't get 30,000 people who would chop people's head off from Finland. You can go through a Finnish society and try. You can't get 30,000 people of them to do so, but you can from, uh, let's say, a culture that has extremist values, right? That, that will boil up, boil up, boil up till you get the hardcore people that will actually do all the extremist things that the culture has put into them in the first place. So that is uh, basically what I conclude with uh, the three things on the religious beliefs. There's many aspects to Islam that I think uh, well, uh, very other guests would contribute better on that topic. But I do want to ask you, because I know that you are Muslim. Yeah. Do you believe so? And you are not extreme on any level that I've talked to you. So can you talk to me about reconciling I believe there are many Muslims like you who are disgusted with Hamas and are not like sympathetic to that cause at all. So can you explain that difference to me then on within your period of extremism? Um, basically, well, the, the level is to accept that there are things that are wrong in your faith, not misinterpreted, not maybe can be, you know, clarified, but are things that are wrong. When you accept that, then you can become honest with yourself. Because a lot like when sort of like Hamas, they carry the Islamic flag or one of the Islamic flags, then a lot of people fear that if they disagree with them, they become disbelievers because they're, you know, against their Muslim brothers, right? Mm -hmm. But no, you if you admit that there are core principles in your belief that are wrong and should be either corrected, removed, or at least marginalized, right? And not taken seriously at all, then... People cannot bring themselves to say what Hamas did is wrong because that what Hamas is is not a, just a political, let's say, movement. It is a religious movement, 
right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it has very religious connotations and connections to the religion, which means they are representing the Islam in sort of way, or they're practicing Islam. If they say what they did was wrong, that means we're saying what Islam did was wrong. If, let's say, Hamas was completely, let's say, Marxist movement, we'd have less trouble with saying whether they are, by principle, wrong, because we don't care if Marxism is wrong. But because they're, at, they're you know, born out of Islam, not Marxism, then it makes criticizing them or saying that they're wrong kind of a, a difficult subject to tackle between ourselves, even. Okay. I get what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, I'll, so, I'd love, yeah. I'm Christian. As Christianity evolved, we have come to believe that certain things that we believed hundreds of years ago are wrong. We're not going to accept them. We're not accepting of them anymore. Um, I, I mean, a, an example would be like beliefs towards gay people, for instance. I mean, even the Catholic Church is kind of coming around to like, okay, they shouldn't be marginalized or things like that. Um, yeah, so that progression happens. And Islam, people forget, is six or seven hundred years younger than Christianity. So it, you know, it just will take more time, probably. I'm Christian I get, seven but, years ago. But know. the way these rules, they were set in stone in Islam. Islam was that clear about its stance. And no religious leader will be able to justify how these uh, views were misinterpreted. So yes. that is that is one of the problems, right? Uh, it's um, you know there's the hadiths that are even clearer than what the Quran says. Um, so with, how are you gonna say a hadith that says these people are cursed that they now are fine when the text clearly says they are are cursed people? For example, you just can't unless you are falsifying what happened. So I think the best way is to marginalize these uh, views. So all the te- hate, uh, you know, uh, hate-based text should be absolutely marginalized. That is no longer taken seriously. And um, I think in I don't know if it's in Judaism or Christianity, but I think it's Judaism. If you if your fellow uh, man they work on a Sunday or something, you, you need to kill him. I think that's one of the views. Now, what is done and the way that I think Judaism has progressed is that they absolutely do not take that seriously. Not at all. They don't even try to enforce it because they know it's wrong. They don't need to say it's wrong, but they absolutely marginalized it and do not take it seriously and it's not practiced. Once we do that too, once we take all our sort of hateful speech and marginalize it to the point that it's not even taught in schools, it's not mentioned, it's not practiced, or and there's even laws that are against practicing it, then we will get to that stage where the Christians and the Jews have uh, come to or have arrived to, sorry. Yeah. Awesome. So then the last things that you were talking about are the attitudes of the Arab world towards the West. Yeah. Um, what do you, so single entity idea, what do you mean by that? Um, uh, Muslim countries, they view the West as a single entity, not as a collective of different views and different uh, ideas as an entity that is bound on destroying Islam and the Islam Muslim people. Uh, so in many, uh, let's say, uh, uh, 
like podcasts or like interviews that I had, they always say the West, the West, the West, the West. They refer to you as the West, as if you are a single entity, right? There are people who are even pro-Islam in the West or pro-Muslims in the West, and they are part of the West. So how is the West always referred to as that single entity that is conspiring against destroying us and uh, erasing our civilization and etc. right? So that is how you're viewed to let you know whatever diverse culture you have, diverse community, diversity of ideas, uh, of political views, um, we mostly refer to you as just the West. That is just like, you know, aliens from Independence Day all collectively bowed on destroying us, regardless even if you, uh, and most people who even refer to you as that, they don't even speak English. So they don't have the capacity or the ability to go and listen to you and understand what you say. They don't know that you have a part two party system. You know, Democrats and Republicans, they'll say, America, America wants to do that. I tell them, no, America uh, is um, democratic uh, ruled at a time and Republican ruled. And these are two opposing parties that have different views, even when it comes to uh, uh, ex their external affairs, right? Mm -hmm. So, and how they deal with the world. So, no, they're not a single entity that doesn't change. It changes even more than we change because we've been the same governments for decades. Well, you... Well, the states changes every eight years, if not four years. Mm -hmm. So that is one of the, the way that we view you. We also suffer from something that no one, I think, else will admit is an inferiority complex. We have a religious text say, that says, if you abide by me, you will remain the dominant superpower, the ultimate civilization on the planet. But then we don't have that because you have, guys have the, let's say, the more advanced civilization in all aspects of it. So we're suffering from this inferiority problem that says, okay, so the what do we need to do? Do we need to follow Islam even more? Are we not abiding by Islam more because Islam promised us this superiority, right? So we keep following it, which means we keep digging the hole even deeper for us and become even more inferior. But at the same time, we believe that that hole will lead us to that tower that you guys are on, if that analogy makes sense. And that is a problem that we're suffering from. And all the preachers telling us you're not following the the text correctly. If you follow it, you'll become a great nation. So we become more extreme. And by becoming more extreme, we become more, you know, uh, regressive and more inferior. And we tell them, okay, worse, our economy is getting worse. Everything is getting worse. We say, no, 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 you haven't followed it correctly yet. You need to even follow it more. So we become even more extremist and we dig the hole even deeper for us. And that is uh, one of the major problems in, in our society is that we don't know the path towards becoming a civilized, powerful nation is that we, you know, what we believe is our, the sort of, like the source of deliverance is our, the source of our demise. And I say that as a Muslim, but a not very religious one. This is when people ask me, are you Muslim? Are you atheist? No, I'm a Muslim, but I'm not very religious one. I, everything I hear with a grain of salt about. Like that. So that is something I mentioned earlier in the previous interview on this podcast is like, that's one of the biggest like mind blowing things. So it's interesting that you're saying that because I was thinking about this and like, it makes sense to me why that inferiority complex exists in the Middle East. I mean, if Middle East, if, if Muslims believe that the final word of God was given to them, the final word, nothing else is going to come afterwards. Yet most of the Arab economy is built on being the middleman between the East and the West. 
both in trade routes, pre-oil and now oil, oil powers the machines that the West or the East build. And I understand why why that inferior inferiority complex, I called it a chip on their shoulder. You know, I understand why that exists. If you feel that you have the final word of God, why do we not, you know, why don't we follow that in the West? But you're saying it's even different. Like if you follow it even more, if you're even more rigid with being religious, then you're going to get, you're going to be the world leaders. Yeah. So when evidence shows that when you, the more you apply the text, the more that you become of an Afghanistan rather than Switzerland, the more that you become of an ISIS state rather than, let's say, you know, Sweden, right? So you, you apply more, but what people are not realizing is the trend that they're going on. The correlation, let's say, if I apply a little bit more, I'm getting worse. So how is it that I, if I read to the end, I'll become even better from uh, better than all the Western countries combined? How? If the trend shows a the downtrend, then I should expect that, okay, there may be a correlation between being more religious and more, let's say, regressive. Maybe, maybe that's just, let, if you apply simple statistics to it, the problem will be solved which is ridiculous that one of our greatest problems can be solved by a simple uh, statistical method. It's, it's really, really tragic and sad. Yeah. So then this conspiracy beliefs in siege mentality. Yeah. So uh, this is something that we uh, install in our children from the moment they are like they can communicate is that we are under siege. There's a lot of countries that hate us. The West is conspiring against us. And we apply these medieval concepts like, oh, the West is trying to buy or divide us in order to conquer us. So these Arab nations, Jordan, Syria, they should be a one strong state. But what America is doing is trying to divide us into states with their own interests so that America will conquer us one by one. Uh, of course, that doesn't, uh, you know, uh, abide by any uh, strategic thinking, because if you think about it strategically, the United States is capable of defeating us combined as well as able to defeat, uh, to defeat us, uh, uh, you know, uh, divided. I mean, if you combine the whole Arab world, it's about 300 million people, which is the, the number of population, around the number of population of the United States, <laughs> right? So they don't need to do de- to. They do not need to divide us, right? Uh, and they have, of course, the technology advantage and the military advantage uh, and the military experience advantage. Uh, so why do they are still conspiring to divide us even more and more and more? They don't need that. If they want to really conquer us, they will conquer us right now today. But what I believe the reasons we are safe, and I, that's something that I tell to do, you know, to counter that siege mentality, is actually Western values have uh, evolved way uh, since the colonial era. They don't believe in colonization because if they believed in it, they can practice it. You know, uh, that might be something controversial to say, but when um, uh, Britain colonized us, they weren't, they didn't, uh, you know, withdraw and we didn't gain our liberty by force, nor we could do now even. The reason is because their values have evolved. They saw that, you know, um, subjecting uh, other people of other cultures, other countries is immoral. And that's why they started withdrawing. And that's why the United States won't do it. The United States, I think they want us to do well and they want us to be a peaceful player in the, um, in the world because that even causes them less problems. 
because war in the Arab Middle East region is a problem to uh, America's interests. So America's interest then dictates that there will be peace and stability in the Middle East, not more division and not more war. Um, of course, the war in Iraq, they kind of like reinforced the conspiracy and siege mentality beliefs. But even then, the Americans said that was a mistake and that's not what we should have done. So, uh, but, you know, when you do actions like that, then that enforces the beliefs in, in my culture where we're targeted, things like that, unfortunately, of course. And that's basically all I have to, to say. So uh, this is how you're viewed by us, basically. Mm -hmm. that you're a single entity, that you're superior for some reason that we're not putting our finger on, and that you basically well, are hell-bent in dividing and then destroying us one by one. Yeah. It's funny when you say single entity, I think that's a problem with the West too, is we view the Middle East as a as a single entity and couldn't be further from the truth. It's also funny when you say that the West is viewed as a single entity because is Bush seen as the leader of that single single entity because of what he did in Iraq? Because people hate him. Like yeah. hate him. Yeah. So but we're more single entity or you're less wrong if you describe us as a single entity than we are than vice versa because we're a more collective society compared to your more individual society. So yes, you can maybe with, let's say some flexibility say, oh, you're a single entity because you're very collective. You hold very similar beliefs, but that would be absolutely wrong to say the same about you because you're extremely diverse, very individualistic societies, uh, very plural in terms of uh, views when that is something that is not tolerated in my society. So plurality lives underground, right? So when you have different opinions, you keep it underground. This is the reason that I don't have my camera on, right? Mm -hmm. Is because we can have that plurality of opinion where if you said the same things that I said about your culture, you can still have your camera on, right? And you can still speak publicly with your real name or your real identities because uh, we just don't have that, which that enforces the single identity even more. So not saying that you would be 100% right to call us a single entity, but you will not be, let's say, you know, 100% drunk either. Inter interesting. Thank you. So then how should the West deal with this and move forward? Uh, I think uh, the West even uh, should... Uh, even act against its values, and that is to uh, support the authoritative secular governments in place. Um, and it does, uh, even if that kind of like uh, enforces the conspiracy that the West is controlling us via these authoritative governments, doesn't matter because once these governments go, then the Pandora box will be open and then you'll get another conflict in the Middle East. So I think dealing with responsible uh, authoritative governments, um, not keeping calling for, or, you know, if, uh, you know, uh, shifting from these authoritative, uh, you know, paradigm to a democratic paradigm and not put pressure on our governments to say, oh, you need to instill more democracy, more democracy, because they, they got our governments, they know us better than, you know, our people, and they know that you're not dealing with. Uh, people who are uh, pro the democracy values that you inspire to instill upon us. Uh, I'll just conclude with a single thought experiment. 
Uh, what and I'll ask you that first. If let's say, what do you think would happen in the United Kingdom if all the institutions disappear overnight? You know, the monarchy, government, all arms of government, you know, uh, parliament, everything, it all disappears overnight, and the pe people in Britain find themselves without a single authority or government figure. What they will? What do you think they'll do? I mean, I guess probably rebuild something similar, maybe without the monarchy. They will. Yes, exactly. They will form left and right. Even if the parties are gone, they will reform again, left-leaning party, left-leaning, uh, right-leaning party, challenge each other in elections, and then rebuild the government. What do you think if our institutions disappear overnight? I don't know. Um, we will kill each other in the streets. It will be tribe for against tribe. It will be a civil war because that's exactly what happened every time the institution collapsed. War, right? So that's something that the West needs to, uh, I'm now using a single entity, that Western powers need to understand before they keep pushing our governments to shift towards democ democracy. Uh, the king, our king has actually is trying to uh, adopt the Britain model for years now, but he, uh, the people of Jordan, who are the people that I love so much, are still unable to form two majority governments, uh, two majority parties, sorry. So he said, all right, I don't want to be an authoritative monarchy. I want to be like the monarchy in, in Britain, right? And uh, then the, the rule will, would be, or the governments will be by the prime minister, not the king. So form two parties, take all the time you want, and challenge each other in elections, and the prime minister will not be appointed by me anymore. It will be elected by the people. And the people still cannot form for 10 years. They cannot form two majority parties left and right, because most people, as he said, and he got criticized for that, but I stand by what he said, most people do not know in politics what is left, and they don't know what is right. They don't understand. If you ask what is left, leaning versus right, they don't know. What they know is that if my cousin is running for elections, I will vote for my cousin. If my if a tri tribe is trying to get, uh, get it, like, you know, uh, want to fight for power, I will fight with my tribe. That's what they uh, we understand at the moment. So I guess maybe in 100 years that will change. I don't know. But at this time, you should recognize that and not put more pressure, again, I say, reiterate, on us becoming a democracy when we are still not ready for it. Yeah, I agree with you, but I, I, see why, I see why you feel that this is controversial. Yeah, it's controversial because it's against your values to support authoritative governments when you, by principle, believe in democracy. But I cite that for pragmatic reasons, nothing more, not for being... Uh, contradictory to your values or anything, but just to be pragmatic about the world as it stands right now. And I think that would be the winning strategy rather than an idealist one that says, oh, you know, democracy is so great, everyone should have it. Well, yes, in principle, ideally, facts on the ground, maybe there are people who are actually not ready for it. And that's not racism. That is not, you know, demeaning people. It's just a state of fact because Evidence shows every time we have a chance to democracy, we choose a civil war over elections, which means we're not ready for it as people, not just as a government. So, yes, it's controversial. Yes, it might sound borderline racist, but I say it, and I'm Jordanian. And I'm not going to be racist against my own people. I love my people to death. Yeah. So, but I say it because it's the truth. And for us to remain safe and remain stable and have that, the, whatever level of uh, let's say, um, uh, privilege or that uh, we have in life is kept by authoritative governments at the moment. Definitely. Yeah.
Yeah. Well, let's wrap this up with your favorite thing about Jordan and being Jordanian. Uh, uh, you know, our national identity. I love it so much. The food, the our main dish is uh, uh, not kosher, by the way. If you're friends, it's actually um, lamb meat cooked in lamb yogurt. So, mm -hmm. but it's the best dish in the world for me. Uh, most Jordanians uh, love it more than anything else. Uh, which is crazy so it's really good food so i love the food i love i love the people in general i love the you know the national identity the pride in being jordanian because we're a very proud nation we have a lot of songs like america they say they are proud of their servicemen and their special forces and etc we took that a level above and we have songs about our special forces so there are like tens or hundreds of songs even that you know uh, that you know Praise them, army, the special forces, and that these songs you play at weddings sometimes, right? So uh, we call them popular songs, or you know, it's a genre of music that is to just to praise the special forces, to praise the army, things like that. And these things I enjoy so much. So I you can't just love one thing about Jordan. I have to love everything about Jordan, I guess, except for the things that I've just criticized for the last hour. <laughs> yeah. Well, but I mean. That's one of the great things about life, right? You have the good and the bad, and if yeah. in my opinion, if you say the bad, then the good gets so much better, right? Because you can have yeah. more of it. So yeah, exactly. And uh, basically, if uh, the things that I see bad are fixed, then we'll become even better as a country. So I think I'm being constructive here, yep. uh, although a little bit controversial. But I think everything in, like I say, is for us as people to do better. And that is my aim, of course, not to, you know, project our people as bad, but for our people to maybe if they listen to this, some of them might get inspired and they are better people than me. They can make change. Um, that is my what I aspire to, not to just demonize our people. Not, not at all. Uh, well, of course. Right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome back anytime. This was a really amazing discussion. Thank you. Is there anything you want to promote? Uh, no, 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 no. Um, no. just, uh, I would just, all I wanted is to share my thoughts. That's it. And I'm happy to remain anonymous after that. <laughs> uh, thank you for having me. I uh, really, really appreciate it. And sure. If I have other ideas to share, I will, uh, uh you know, send you a message to tell you, like, I would like to speak about this, uh, and maybe we can do another episode, but for now, this is basically all my ideas at, at this time. Yeah. yeah. But thank you again for having me. Cheers. Of course. Cheers. Of course. All right. Thank you guys so much. I hope you guys really enjoyed these interviews. Um, I had the best time talking to Renzi and Maz. And I think that this will really benefit you um, to hear about the Mizrahi side because we always hear about, you know, Ashkenazi Jews and and then being in Israel and Israel being kind of a Western country, knowing that it's, you know, I just I just think that this is an interesting perspective that I haven't heard elsewhere. I also want to really thank Renzi and Maz for coming on, especially, you know, I know Maz could get in trouble with the government. So if if it gets traced back to him that he came on. So thank you again for doing that. Um, I'm going to keep he won't be linked anywhere in the comments because I don't want to get him in trouble. But thank you guys so much for listening. I know this is a longer episode, but I hope it's jam-packed with information that you find as fascinating as I do. Have a great rest of your week and see you next time.